Middle East on the brink, North Korea on the brink, Iran increasing its aggression, elections in Taiwan. Look, there's a lot of global instability as we ourselves plunge into primary season. How have you sheltered your savings and investments from potential major setbacks to the economy? You think it can happen here? It can happen here, but it's not too late to diversify an old IRA or 401k into gold. And Birch Gold Group can help you with that. Birch Gold is the only gold company I trust. As opposed to many other investments, Gold thrives in times of uncertainty. It is an important part of diversifying your savings. Now listen, here's how Birch Gold can help make it a part of yours. Birch Gold will help you convert an existing IRA or 401k into a tax-sheltered IRA in gold. And it doesn't cost you a penny out of pocket. You want to learn more? Just text SAVAGE to 989898 for a free info kit. S-A-V-A-G-E, text it to 989898 and you get a free info kit. It costs you nothing. Just text SAVAGE to 989898. With an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau, countless five-star reviews, and thousands of happy customers, I encourage you to arm yourself with the knowledge of diversification through precious metals. Protect yourself. Text SAVAGE to 989898 and claim your free info kit. Protect your savings with gold. Do it now. Text SAVAGE to 989-898. Thank you very much. Birch Gold is the only gold company I trust. Text SAVAGE to 989-898. Warning, the Savage Nation contains adult language, adult content, psychological nudity. Listener discretion is advised. And now, the world's most exciting podcast, The Savage Nation, home of borders, language, culture. And here he is, New York Times best-selling author and National Radio Hall of Fame inductee, Michael Savage. Welcome to the free version of the Michael Savage podcast, and I'm going to keep it free for all of you. But there are many of you who would love to be able to listen to my show without any ads. I love ads, but many of you want to listen to the podcast free of ads. So we created something for you, a solution. We call it the Savage Premium. For less than the price of one flat, tasteless beer at your local bar, you can receive access to all of my podcasts going back years ad-free for just $3.99. That's at $3.99 a month. You'll get not only my ad-free podcast, but you will also occasionally receive access to material that is exclusive for members only, and I'm going to give you the list in a minute of what you've, what you've missed. You're going to get an occasional monologue from me, maybe a reading from one of my novels, sneak peeks of interviews before anyone else hears them, archive pieces dating back to 1994. Many things that come up, you're going to get exclusive access to Michael Savage material. Details can be seen on my website, michaelsavage.com, and if you want to join... All you got to do is go to glow.fm and search Savage Premium. That's glow.fm and search Savage Premium. Now, you will always have access to my free weekly podcast. I want to be clear about that. That's my promise to you. But if you want less ads and more Savage, join the Savage Premium Club today and never miss a spoken word of mine. It's glow.fm slash Savage Premium. You can find it on michaelsavage.com. And here's some of the stuff that you have missed so far. Michael Savage reading from his best-selling novel, Countdown to Mecca. My words, my voice. Savage reads from one of his lost journals, Fiji, 1968. Savage's first drive-time show, Hour One. My interview with the Jewish gangster, very popular. I uh, read from my first written published article, Who is at the Helm? 
from 1965. It's heard nowhere but on my premium site. I read passages from my novel, Abuse of Power. Uh, we replayed Fat Al's Tuna. My Savage Show from 324.94, the earliest show in the archive, 324.94. My interview with Donald Trump from 110.2011. 110.2011, while Mark Levin was mocking him and Sean Hannity was mocking him uh, and the others were mocking him, I was interviewing Trump. Much more. And remember, subscribers also get ad-free podcasts every week. The cost is less than a beer at a bar, and you get a better buzz with, with the Savage Premium. So go to, go to glow.fm slash Savage Premium for full access to ad-free podcasts and exclusive sound you'll not hear anywhere else. Thank you very much. Welcome to the Michael Savage Podcast. So I'm going through my old manuscripts because this... Look, a major university wants all of my writings and manuscripts, memorabilia. It's a big deal. It's a major university. So I'm going through my old writings, and I'm going to read you pieces of stories that never got published. So this one's called, I don't know what it's called. It's actually an old radio monologue, it says, from 1997. Would you believe this? Apparently, it appeared on a radio show in 1997. I used to write my monologues March 25th, 1997, and it's called On the Throwaway. And it goes like this. Are you ready? These are like jazz songs. Think of John Coltrane or one of the other great jazz musicians because that's what I am in my form. Three, two, one. Riding my bike today, enjoying the sense of springtime, I remembered something from the springs of my youth. My father had a Cadillac. He took it for tune-ups and repairs to only one mechanic who he swore by. Ray the mechanic is how he was known in our home. A big, burly black guy, not with a smile nor a scowl. Ray had a technique or a technology that appealed to my father. You see, Ray used a stethoscope. When he listened to the engine sounds with his trusty stethoscope against the valve covers of the great 50s Caddy V8, or on the engine block itself, my father's eyes would light up with a knowing satisfaction rarely seen these days. Ray the mechanic listened to the ticks and gurgles of that car engine with the intent and know-how of a cardiologist. His eyes turned inwards as if in meditation. My father so loved and trusted that engine, that car, that the mechanic was like a priest to him. Loyal to them both, he never traded either, keeping that Cadillac and that mechanic until his own heart failed him. I remember the summer of my father's death, the summer his heart stopped for good. The car stood still in the driveway of our little attached brick house, as if abandoned, looking for an owner who would never return. At the funeral, Ray the mechanic showed up, the only black in a crowd of white people. Approaching the casket to say goodbye, he placed his big black hands on the wood of woods, and for a moment his eyes turned inwards as if in meditation. That car is now long gone, junk probably, as are the men. Today we do not attach to our machines or tools or possessions that way. We discard, trade, give away, as fast as we can, the new design our hearts desire. Now I have no feelings one way or the other about holding on to things, but I did realize this while puffing and pumping my pedals today. We have been trained to discard possessions, to keep ourselves consuming, to maintain the GDP. We have also learned to discard the intangibles of life. 
wives, husbands, friends, neighborhoods, houses are all traded for a newer model. Here we have lost it all. For what does it profit a man who has gained the world and lost his soul, said a wise man thousands of years in the past? He may not have known of Ray the mechanic, nor of my father, nor of that 1955 Cadillac sedan, but today I would like to dedicate this program to them for their memories and for a time long gone. March 25th, 1997. Wow. Pretty good. Cracked me up. Savage, a host like no other. Well, you know, I'm going to tell you something. It's another rainy day here in Northern California, and it's just after New Year. And I don't really want to talk about politics to you. I can and I will. So I was going through some old manuscripts. I'm getting ready to throw them out or do something else with them. And I found something interesting entitled The Last Member of the Leisure Class or The Importance of Loafing. I think it was written about a year or two before I wound up in radio. And for that reason alone, I think that it's worth you hearing it. You'll judge, of course, but I think it's good. And I'm going to read to you now the last member of the leisure class or the importance of loafing. You know, I wrote this in 1992 or so, and I just found it in a stack of manuscripts. I was getting ready to either keep or destroy, frankly. And I started to read it in a coffee shop this morning on this almost rainy morning, I decided you might like it. And the subtitle was How I Enjoy Leisure in a Time of Madness, but it goes well beyond that, so let me begin. It was the early Michael before radio, and it goes like this. Idled by a strange and mysterious illness characterized by a lethargy, only popular with aristocrats of pre-revolutionary France and Mandarin China, I joined them spiritually. Had I spent my years to date in idleness, I would not boast of my condition. Having had something of a driven life and knowing what stresses engine my neighbors in these trying times, I need only roll over to the forces of my malaise to luxuriate in the vices of idleness without guilt. I'm enjoying my days in a blue terry cloth robe, reading in a comfortable chair, watching the leaves change color and fall. My dog, a beautiful miniature collie that was snowy, will play a role in these notes, as will my wife of many years and my children. Friends will not call in these pages, for we do not live in an age of friendships, only associates. Not working means no associates. The book, The Importance of Living, saved me from sure suicide when I was 18 years old. Lin Yutang, the Chinese sage, taught me in his book, a masterpiece really, to love my animal heritage. In the image of the monkey permitted me to accept, even enjoy my sensual impulses, to temper my original body-hating Judeo-Christian view and see life as a poem. Whole chapters by Lin were devoted to sitting in chairs, lying in bed, Drink and wine games, conversation, tea and friendship, food and medicine, smoke and incense, house and interiors, the inhumanity of Western dress, on going about and seeing things, on flowers and flower arrangements, on bigness, rocks and trees, and most importantly, what is luck. And so these notes of a straggler are devoted to the importance of loafing and the cult of the idle life. 
I have no choice being visited by this mysterious illness and can only accept its terms, which manifest my learning to enjoy leisure in a time of madness. Today, GS called. We haven't spoken in months. I told him we moved into the boonies to cut costs and get warmer weather away from our last home right on the damp and windy bay. His great stardom of the 60s is now devoted to saving animals from our plates and from the tortures of the research labs. Next headline in here is in a classic car showroom where racial tensions are temporarily suspended. The other day I found myself in the law offices of an old friend who owns an historic landmark building on a busy street in San Francisco. I can't remember the reason I went to consult with him, but after taking him to lunch, admittedly for free advice, I had an hour to so-called kill. So I walked a few blocks to the classic car showroom nearby. Well, there I savored a frame-up restoration. Beige it was, black interior, XK140 drophead coupe, when Jaguar meant more than a logo. The restored wood, burled walnut, predated my knowledge of the disappearing forest. The 16-inch tires were poured in molds when rubber was cheap. All that chrome was cast prior to my becoming knowledgeable about the New Caledonia's nickel mines from an old ethnobotanist colleague of the Natural History Museum in Paris. A black guy was sniffing around a vintage Mercedes the same wet afternoon. The old lady saleswoman did not blink when she announced 59.5 to my query. I looked at her as though she were mad, but I smiled so as not to insult her. The other guy asked me how much. That's a heavy tab and we both commiserated, nodding and smiling in that otherwise empty showroom, glad to be communicating without racially charged symbols. Unless you consider that his coveting an older Mercedes and I, a vintage Jaguar, from the time of our adolescent dreams, told me something about our origins. We said our goodbyes and I buttoned up my olive drab army raincoat over a regal peach-colored sports jacket hitting the wet street, almost indistinguishable from some respectable homeless men I've seen walking where it rained. North Beach, Friday. Waiting for my lunch of calamari, artichokes, and spaghetti in an old standby, the U.S. restaurant, I sit by the window watching the human parade, sipping a glass of inexpensive but not cheap barberoni. Here, as in so many places, Chinatown adjoins Little Italy. Looking into the fading eyes of a stooped old Chinese man, guided by his daughters, can you care about the national debt? The heavy lids present what to Caucasian eyes may be a smile, but the man is very old, almost falling down, unshaven, in an old sweater, but he is loved by his daughters. As Lear knew, this is no small feat. To be loved and supported by your daughters in your old age, is this not the seed of the family dream, the main reason we have children? Surely it's not to live with the mental illness called teenage, nor to sell off our retirement with the fund termed college. Yeah, sure, I know about the ballet performances, the evenings together in front of the television when they're young, and the Halloween costumes of your dreams, 
more energy going into the American national Mardi Gras than into any religious holiday, no matter your persuasion. Don't you ever think your fair daughter will take care of you when you're old to spare you the humiliation and terrible horrors of the old age home? Quote, woman is water and man is clay and water permeates and molds the clay and the clay holds the water and gives its substance in which water moves and lives and has its full being. Unquote. I don't even know who wrote that, to be honest. The Savage Nation. It's Savage On Demand. Moving on now in my little story that I found for you. The next heading is From Sandals to Sandals in Three Generations. In the midst of the worst financial crisis the world has experienced since the 1920s, the worst social upheaval since World War II, a continuous slide towards national mediocrity, if not obscurity. I'm feeling nihilistic and don't care for ambition anymore. And I want to pause right here. Remember, I wrote this in 1992 before radio. (laughs) Some things don't really change. I'll go on now. The British had a saying that a family went from sandals to sandals in three generations. The first generation struggled out of poverty. The second generation built on the foundation and the third squandered it. I went to a party the other night at one of the mansions on Pacific Heights. The name is famous in San Francisco, and the current hosts as affable and welcoming. But they have no money, I was told by my friend who invited me. They are the snobbiest people on earth, and the nicest once they accept you, but they have no money. It seems the grandfather made the fortune, the father of my host secured it, And the current occupant of this mansion and carrier of this name simply spends what is left. Makes me think, should I spend whatever time I have left on earth building my fortune so a future descendant might live in splendor? Nah, I think I'll continue to enjoy my mysterious illness, ride the ferry into town, eat inexpensive Italian or Chinese feasts, sleep in the afternoons in my little hotel room, read, write, bicycle, converse, and plan. Plan? How can I plan in the midst of a crisis of nihilism? You know, there's an Italian saying, questa testa fa perde questa testa. I think it means this head, the penis, makes you lose this head, the brain. Didn't know that. Questa testa fa perde questa testa. This head makes you lose this head. I used to love Italian sayings that I heard from the old timers. It is not a matter of a lack of will or daring or vision or any of the other hundred tenets of getting ahead. No, it is that I lack tunnel vision, the ability to close out the stars and see but one path before me. To focus is to lose the cosmic eye of the baby. To focus too closely is to lose it all, to cease breathing. Open your cosmic eye and see your breathing increase. Next, on a plane to San Diego, I wrote, Like Oahu, I am solitary, predatory, and extremely elusive. An ancient Chinese poet once wrote down his 33 happy moments. When you add it up, can you honestly support, can you honestly report more than 33 truly happy moments in your life? I think we in the success-driven world are on a fundamental path of self-deception when we try to, quote, be happy or fulfilled all the time. Is the seabird happy while she stalks her food? Or the bear, the deer, the osprey, 
when the bear retreats to her lair and feeds her cubs, is she happy? Can animals experience this emotion? Or is victory the only movement worthy of man's happiness? To defeat an opponent, is this the reason to be? Now, just because I am afflicted with a great malaise, unable or unwilling to do very much in the way of work, does not mean my mind is less active than in the past. Yearning for the occasional conversation, the soft, sweet winter light as it bathes the pastel-colored wooden buildings, the wonderful food of China and Italy as it has been adapted to America's West Coast over a period of about 100 years, that is a century of mixing local vegetables and soils into the ancient recipes of the Hakka people, the Genovese, and at least one Sicilian, and I have decided to take a room in North Beach. Walking up the stairs to my room, number 63, at the top of fifth floor in the old Italian-American hotel on Sansome Street at Broadway, I ran into my old friend Frank. Hey, if it isn't my old friend Frank, I said in greeting at the top of the first set of stairs in this red brick SRO walk-up. The linoleum was as clean as your grandmother's, and it always reminded me of my grandmother's big house with the potted palm by the door. A grandmother dead now for over 40 years whose house emitted a clean, sweet aroma that I swear I recognize each time I enter this residence hotel, mainly occupied by men on the run or hiding from their past. Frank and I hadn't spoken on the phone for about three months since I moved into my house over the bridge. He used to call a couple of times a week, but being a notoriously cheap bastard, he stopped calling because the rate was no longer local. So Frank, I'm now 47 cents away. Too much, huh? He gave me his John Wayne smile, which suited his Anglo face and lanky 65-year-old frame. He said to me, you heard about the arrest? Yeah, you told me a few months ago about the two Lezo cops and the Asian who jumped you for packing. You wouldn't want them to risk their lives on a dangerous drug dealer or deranged street bum, would you? Guess not. But the judge gave me my gun back. He let a friend buy it who sold it back to me. You're lucky you got a white judge, your age who respected your war record and your little speech in court. If you had gotten Patel, that Indian slumlord who weeps for the poor, she'd have thrown you in Folsom for 10 years. As Frank sat down to chat with me on the landing, the two of us glad to have this chance meeting to renew our long but distant friendship, I recalled his speech to the judge, now famous in certain North Beach circles. Frank had been arrested by chance as he got off a bus on Broadway at Stockton just as he shifted his pistol from his shoulder pack to his jacket pocket. Frank was more humiliated than angry. They threw me against the car and broke my butterflies, he had told me, months before when I first heard of this case. They didn't have to break my butterflies. Being uneducated by formal means, he had taken a liking to butterflies soon after leaving the Navy in 45 or 46 and had since become a serious amateur collector. His tiny hotel room was stacked with books and butterflies. No TV, just a radio for the all-night talk shows, which he devoted himself to as other men did their jobs. He said this to the judge, Now, judge, a gun is not much good if you're assaulted. I admit that, he began. But a gun is very good if you're across the street when someone else is being assaulted. 
If I had been there when that 20-year-old boy, Quackenbush, was being beaten to death by those monsters who he caught trying to steal his car, he might still be alive. Or that guy who was beaten to death by those creeps with baseball bats who accosted them at a cash machine on a mission street. He might be alive this very day, Judge, if I had happened to be across the street when they jumped him. He told it his way, despite my advice and that of his free lawyer. We both advised that he say he was coming from the gun range in Richmond, which the law permits, to carry a weapon to and from a range, unloaded, of course. No, Frank had to tell the truth, that he was 65, ex-Navy, and unwilling to hide indoors, that he felt unsafe on the streets unarmed. So the judge decides to dismiss the case, charging him with a misdemeanor. But it doesn't end there. He is taking the cops to a hearing for manhandling him and for breaking his pretty little butterflies. Some monarchs he had just collected over in the headlands. Home of Borders. Language. Culture. The Savage Nation. The friendship renewed over a few good laughs, and we headed up to Broadway to have a beer at the microbrewery bar. As the sharp hoppy taste crossed my palate, it was Emperor Norton Lager was the only full beer I drank. Normally it was cake bread Sauvignon Blanc at home or light beers out, too many calories otherwise. He was, as I've said, in his mid-60s more or less, idle from his occasional trade as electrician and happy as a clam in mud now that Social Security paid $500 a month. To him, a small fortune. After I got to know him in his excessively self-contained way, I called him an American Zen master, except when his excessive cheapness got to me. I think we stopped speaking a few months back after I gave him a few free bottles of Rishi mushrooms, and he didn't even offer to buy me a beer. For Christ's sakes, when they couldn't pay the country doctor in the American town of the distant past, they brought him a barrel of apples, I thought. But I had saved him from sure death at the claws of cancer over 10 years before, and the bond was too sure to break over a temporary impasse. By taking him from the VA hospital up in the bluff overlooking the Golden Gate and putting him on 30 grams of vitamin C a day and other vitamins and a diet and some herbs, I pulled him back from the diagnosis of lymphoma and go home to die, the best that doctors could then offer. Frank, I went to a funeral last week, my friend Bob's father. You want to hear about it. I almost called you to come, but they didn't want to have too many strangers. He nodded, sipped on his beer, and settled back to listen. One thing about his generation and his culture, they were great listeners. Bob's father, Harry, was 82, I began. He survived Auschwitz, where the German bastards cut three fingers from his right hand in a saw just for sport. I watched Frank's face. It was, as I expected, guarded. After all, I had met this bum in a bar about 12 years ago when I stood up to his anti-Semitic ravings. We quickly became good but guarded pals, he needing his Jew and I my Christian. Standing over six foot five and made of lean English muscle, I had threatened to kill him if he didn't shut up. Now, I'm only five foot seven, but I'm broad enough and my eyes relay protons of dark hate when I need to. I've been mistaken for an Italian in Italy, a Spaniard in Spain, an Arab in Morocco, a Jew in Brooklyn. The reason I say I've been mistaken for a Jew is because I don't behave like one, at least those I know here in America. Maybe I was born to lead a tank brigade in Israel or a mob in Vegas. All I know is that I've led a little league in the suburbs and a few expeditions to collect plants in the South Seas and been damn proud of it. But my eyes are those of a saint when calm, a killer when agitated. 
it's in my blood i think this murderous rage either through eye power or the work of saving angels i've talked my way out of death more than once so frank shut his mouth that night many years ago and as i've said he tends to harbor certain nazi sentiments so when I told him about Harry's mutilated hand, I wasn't surprised at his lack of immediate pitying sounds. But I like a challenge, so I went on. Harry never cried about his hand, I told Frank. He came to America with his wife, who he met somewhere over there after the war, had a family, namely his son. He was full of life, a big drinker, loved women, beat his son with a strap, but a big personality, Frank nodded. I think the Christian in him liked the never cried part and beat his son. So I proceeded with my funeral story. I had lost touch with his son for a few years. His Swedish bitch of a wife threw him out for beating her and at least one of their three daughters and he was in one of his episodic hidings, this time from the sheriff's department. They had forced him to turn over 100% of his earnings to his greedy peasant blonde from a far northern island so he chose to hide and not work. Anyway, I'm in the Y up in Lucas Valley on a rare Friday night when a young blonde girl, so pretty I had to cover my eyes for a second, calls out, Michael, are you Michael? She was near the signing board for the various machines, so I assumed she had confused me with some other person named Michael who had signed his name to burn fat off his butt with one of those machines. Yeah, that's me, but I think you want another Michael. Don't you remember me, she said, her spandex exposed body so ready for pleasure and her wildly eclipsed pupils so open that I halted in my interest. I'm A, it's Bob's daughter. <laughs> Revolving through the panoply called memory, I imaged her as a 12-year-old, sulky in her Girl Scout browns as a 14-year-old, puffing out the Shabbos candles at one of Bob's beautiful Friday night celebrations. See, he had become religious after I introduced him to the Chabad Orthodox Jews in Berkeley in the 70s. There's nothing like a reformed con man for conversion to true believer. Unfortunately, he eventually conned the rabbi out of eight grand, forcing the poor guy in the temple into foreclosure. So his religious zeal was now somewhat tempered by sobriety. Anyway, she was B's eldest daughter and updated me as to Bob and his dad. My grandpa's got cancer and he's dying, she went on. So I called and went over a few days later and we visited him. We brought a bag of groceries, you know, French bread, a pound of sliced turkey, some wine, some vegetables, a quart of milk, I think. The usual stuff you bring when someone's sick, poor, and housebound. Bob and his wife greeted us at the door of their little one-bedroom apartment on Van Ness. I always liked it there, remembering the few Rosh Hashanah and Passover dinners they invited us to. Having been in the antiques business, like my deceased father, Benny, the place was filled with oversized, high-quality furniture and paintings. Harry was in a bathrobe in a gigantic English armchair, shrunken but beautiful in a way. He pulled me close and said, Michael, I remember when you took me to Chabad in Berkeley almost 20 years ago. I know you almost 20 years. That's not a short time, Michael. You took me to a bar after on Telegraph. Those were the good times. Now is the bad times. I looked over at Frank and I said, Frank, you hear this? I extend one good deed 20 years ago and this guy remembers it. It's like one of the last moments of his life, this one good drink. So he goes fast into the hospital where he insists that they let him out. 
probably to die at home. And three or four days later, boom, it's over. Like that. His son told me he had been sick most of the night, vomiting, probably those toxic chemochemicals. He forces himself up and sing and says, son, she's there on your left, the angel of death. His son gets scared. He says, pop, there's nobody here but me and mom. Harry stares at the big chair across that small room. To your right, son, on the couch. He's here with her. He stands up, starts to walk across the room, collapses and dies. I can see that even the anti-Semite Frank is crying, gently wiping his tears from his face. Listen, you racist, I said to him, looking at that hole in the ground with Harris' casket so bare and hearing the rabbi's ancient chant and watching the young Mexican gravediggers enjoying that chant, I become reminded of my own hole waiting. I never knew where I wanted to live, I whispered to Ben's friend from an Israeli intelligence guy. And I sure don't know where I want to die. We never know where we're going to die, he reminded with a 70s rocker's cackle and grin. Savage Nation. It's savage, uncut, unfiltered, and raw. Here's some scraps of notes called The Bungalow Colony of a story I was making notes for a story. One Day in the Life of Sammy Berman, year 1959. Scenes the oxygen tent. Doctor to adolescent, as his father lay dying, hovering between life and death, the doctor says to the boy, well, son, it's like having a blowout on the highway. We put a patch on the hole in the tube, but we did, don't know how long it will hold. Next, the hotel bar early that night. Eight empty glasses in front of him. Sam is arm around, a hand and face, the music, singing There Goes My Heart, ordering another two. His wife is there, too, with their friends. Just an innocent night away from the bungalow colony at the boring hotel bar. Next is the sister. Earlier that day, sitting in the parents' double bed, crying her heart out between tissues for dry tears and towels for dry heaves, the poor 19-year-old is lovesick. She is expecting her boyfriend to visit the bungalow colony for the first time. He is supposedly a catch, a rich guy. He drives a late-model convertible, a 1958 Chevy Impala. Supporting sister is her mother, her two aunts, and several family friends. Placed away from this 10 by 15 room bungalow and set in a spacious, well-appointed drawing room, the women could be characters out of Imperial Russia as painted by Mazursky. The women know about the pain of longing, the hopes, the fears, the in-betweens of blissful kisses not felt in 20 years. The girl is sobbing now, crying her heart out, muffled by the large bath towel held by mother and aunt to keep the sounds of love torn grief from the ever watchful ears of the less close neighbors in a colony without walls suddenly one of the women leaps up he's here he's here i see his car oh well that's about it shall i read the next little sad piece from the bungalow colony the brother who never was you heard about my silent brother on the dresser sits a few family photos in the center on its own doily is a faded blurred picture of a boy in a high chair he wears extra thick eyeglasses and his head is askew hanging almost like a doll whose neck had been snapped by a too playful child 
Here's another one called My Year in New York, and it goes like this. He was one of those shoddy marginal physicians I knew whose dream it was to make a hair growth formula fortune. Now, he himself was one of those brainy, partially bald, thin guys with a fixed smile. The type of kid who was a real nasty prick. You know, the one who would step on your arch during a rushed fire drill and complain to the teacher you kicked him. Anyway, it was because of him, in a way, that I decided to get out of the West Coast, San Francisco, and take a year's sabbatical in New York. Out of desperation from 11 years in the Great Bay Area, Great Bay Area, Great Gay Barrier, to teach biology at Berkeley and being simultaneously attracted and repelled by every entrepreneurial Bhagavad Gita, I just had to get the hell to New York and try to live out the novelist within. So with my 10-year-old daughter in tow, I flew off one fine August day up to Vancouver to catch the Canadian Pacific run to Banff for a week of fishing, hiking, sitting, and planning my assault on New York's literary ghetto and publisher's row. Anyway, this shoddy doctor with the hair growth dream was the final impetus because I came to kind of like him after so many years of bland people. All that Bay Area radical, cool, non-committalism. Steve, Dr. Steven Berg, almost had me signing over my life savings, about $50,000, for a major share in his hair growth scheme. Then one day, my little girl said to me, Dad, if you go to New York for a year and sell your novel and write, you'll be richer. I know it sounds unlikely that a kid could think that smart, but Vinnie, Vanessa's nickname, was always around, and without a mother from the time she was two, she grew up real fast. Well, that was a piece of fiction that never went anywhere. You know, there's a limit to nostalgia, and I think I've reached mine. Thanks for listening, and I'll not be right back. Thank you very much for listening to today's podcast. I hope you've enjoyed it and learned something from it. We have about 400 other episodes available for you to listen to absolutely free. You can go back into our vast library of podcasts and listen to any one of them at any time. And remember this, if you want to listen to my podcast ad-free, sign up for the Savage Premium Membership and get access to ad-free podcasts as well as some premium content from our Savage Archives. How do you sign up for those ad-free podcasts? Please visit michaelsavage.com for a link. Again, thank you for your listenership. This is Michael Savage.